0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia, we're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Ocean acidification, changing climates, all of these have once before wiped out life in our oceans. Find out about the Hermium triassic mass extinction event in our oceans, and how our oceans struggle to recover many years, millions of them in fact, afterwards. But which creatures f- fared better than the rest plus we find out about a massive blob in the sea of warm temperatures and how creatures adapted to that as well now it's often heard in lots of studies and reports about the upcoming extinctions that we said to face or extinctions that have already happened in australia we just had the publishing of the state of the environment report for 2022 and the results were not good readings but it's not actually the first time we've had pretty serious extinctions here on earth the difference here of course in the current settings is it's obviously anthropological based we have caused all of these extinctions through our pollution overfishing harm and obviously endangerment to an ecology system along with the species themselves but there's been plenty of times when there've been mass extinctions here on planet earth and a lot of them were incredibly severe way more severe than we're seeing right now. And it's a good thing that obviously we're not after that level. Because when you look at these mass extinction events, they've been pretty devastating to life here on planet Earth. And I'm not talking about the dying off of the dinosaurs, though that is an example of this. One of the ones that is probably the most disastrous is the Permian Triassic extinction event, which occurred around 252 million years ago. Now, when this event occurred, a huge amount of life on Earth just vanished, died off pretty rapidly. And the recovery of life on Earth took millions of years to get anywhere close back to the biodiversity seen in pre-extinction levels. And if you wanna think about, for example, life in the sea back then, there was around 90% of the species <laughs> disappeared. Now, that's just unbearably, unimaginably huge. So if you look at it, numbers range between around 57% of biological families went extinct in that period of time, 83% of genera, and 81% of marine species, and 70% of terrestrial vertebrate species. It also was the largest known mass extinction event of insects. If you look at the types and the densities of mass extinction events, this permanent triassic event, especially in the oceans, is definitely the most devastating that we have on fossil record. And there were a number of mass extinction events, and this one is really the big one, especially when it comes to marine. Now, when they look at the fossil record, you can see around 286 of the 329 marine invertebrate genera just disappearing. And the extinction primarily affected species with calcium carbonate skeletons, those are reliant on stable CO2 levels to basically produce the material they need to make their, their skeletons. So, when you have ocean acidification as a result of increased atmospheric CO2, they really, really struggle. Now, of course, 250 million years ago, we don't really have a good fingerprint of what exactly happened to cause this. Could have been increased volcanism, changes in the atmosphere concentration, changes in in the acidity of the oceans, you name it. But our real problem is the fact that, well, trying to understand what happened so long ago is particularly difficult in the sea because the ocean floor turns over over around 200 million years, and this is just after that boundary point. So our ability to reverse engineer it is pretty difficult. But in areas that haven't been turned over, areas we have really good fossil records records we can actually get some pretty interesting insights into not just what died off but how the life that managed to survive recovered after such a hugely catastrophic mass extinction event caused by very massive changes in the earth at that point in time Exactly what researchers from the University of Bristol, including Xiang Fan and a number of others, have published in the journal Science Advances. Now what they were diving into was the story of this Permian crisis, this large end Permian mass extinction event. And a great place to study the recovery of creatures from this is by looking at trails and burrows in the South China Sea. Now By studying this particular region of the South China Sea, they're able to find out some pretty amazing things. Because they traced fossils from around 26 sections through the entire series of events, before, during, and after the 7 million crucial years. And this is where it gets nice to think about in geological time, but this is what is happening. In geological time settings we're not entirely exactly sure when it happened if it was gradual or if it was sudden but we know in this 7 million years it's pretty much when something happened somewhere in that 7 million years okay so during that point you can they have found 26 sections that gave them some great sample points 400 in total, to look at all of the recovery stages of the animals before, during, and after this massive crisis, including benthos, nekton, and a lot of other small soft-bodied burrowing animals in the ocean. Like, this is a pretty amazing thing to imagine. They're going through ocean samples and finding creatures that themselves were burrowing in the ocean some 250 million years ago. Researchers like lead author, doctor Huican Fen from China University of Geosciences in Wuhan and why they're so fascinated about this. Because trace fossils and trails and burrows are a really good way of actually having some creature fossilized and preserved enough for us to study it. Normally, a soft-bodied creature, like a small crustacean, would have an exoskeleton and you get very difficult or poor skeleton remains if it did have an actual skeleton. Um, so if it's invertebrate or invertebrate, Normally, these small creatures are very difficult to, to preserve because, well, most sea creatures you've got to have the right conditions. Now, if they're diving and digging through the dirt already and making burrows, well, then you're already more likely to find them because they're doing half of that job of preserving themselves for you. And, and Dr. Feng and others have been really focused on these South China Sea because they can see some really beautifully preserved trace fossils that you can see the whole ecosystem in the way is changing and what impact it's having on the biodiversity and the types of skeletonized remains that they can see. Early Triassic, as Professor Zhongquan Chen, who is the director of this area of research at the China University of Geosciences points out, one of the most remarkable aspects of South China is the data, is the breadth of ancient environments we could sample. Because what they were looking at was this hothouse period of the earth And where they found survivors and those that began to rub cover first was actually in the deeper waters, not the shallow ones. So for example, if you look at the Nekton, they occurred pretty early on in the geological time scale. The first animals to recover were basically the deposit feeders like worms and shrimps. Then the recovery of the suspension feeders, those that chew on and chomp down on stuff in the uh, suspended liquid like brachiopods and pyrazans. But much of the other bigger creatures, the bivalves, took much, much longer. And this creates some pretty interesting dynamics. Perhaps it's a way of looking at which species managed to thrive in this new environment first. If, for example, as one of the collaborators, Alison Cribb, points out, maybe the deposit feeders were making such a mess of the sea floor that the water was polluted with mud, the mud churned meant suspension feeders couldn't feed. And look, this is certainly a possibility. One species thriving in this new environment makes it harder for another species to survive in the changed environment, as well as just all everything else that's happening to them. And normal environments that creatures would inhabit, like coral reefs, had also disappeared completely, and they didn't really return to much later. Now, what this study does show is that those at that bottom level, those in the mud and feeding on the deposits at the bottom, those that had soft bodies, well, they were able to recover pretty strongly, mostly because they weren't relying on strong calcium-based exoskeletons to be, well, sorry, or skeletons themselves to be built. And so the high CO2 and the warming didn't really hurt these soft-bodied creatures that much. They were burrowing, they were keeping themselves cool. The CO2 wasn't required for a tough skeleton that, that they needed. And they played a pretty key role in the rebuilding the ecosystem as well after And then if you look at the early Triassic period, you'll find many strange adaptions and radiations in the morphological trees. And a lot of it is coming from the innovations coming from these small soft-bodied animals, especially in the oceans at this point in time. So just because there's a mass extinction event, doesn't mean that all species die off or die off evenly some may find themselves perfectly designed for that niche in this case the high co2 and the warming oceans were perfect for the soft-bodied creatures but some of the other large skeletons or stronger skeletons couldn't survive in the environment now will this be as extreme as what we see here in, on climate change in the current era hopefully not and the time scales we're talking about here are millions of years but it's interesting to see how species adapted and changed to the climate as it changed around them even though it was pretty forcible and traumatic. Now life did recover eventually, but it took a very long time and it was a certain niche that had to flourish first before others could redevelop and customize themselves to the new changed climate. This is an interesting work from researchers from the China School of Geological Sciences in Wuhan, University of Bristol published in the journal Science Advances. From a tale of mass extinctions and warming oceans from millions of years ago, to one actually that's much, much more current, which researchers and biologists and ocean scientists from University of California, Santa Cruz, have published in the journal Journal of Geophysical Research Oceans. Now, this research and this paper, first author, was Rachel Holzler with a large team of collaborators, including Keats, Costa, and Edwards. Now, what they were investigating is something pretty unusual and something that sounds like it's out of science fiction. The North Pacific Blob. Now, the North Pacific Blob was basically a marine heat wave, a concept you probably didn't really hear of before, but just in the same way that large masses of cold and warm air can settle in certain regions in our atmosphere. Just like air is in a sense a fluid, so is fluid in the ocean with currents and so on, that all the settings that can create heat waves in atmosphere can happen pretty much in an ocean. We don't talk about it that much because it's harder to study and, and measure it, but it's there. If you've heard of the La Nina and El Nino patterns, this is an example of a cyclical pattern of heatings and warmings, which causes all kinds of effects, droughts and rainstorms, as we're seeing here right now in Australia. That's an example of an ocean heating or cooling zone. Now, the North Pacific blob, on the other hand, was a specific marine heat wave that started in late 2013 and continued all the way through to 2015. It was the largest and longest lasting marine heat wave on record. Now, the particular researchers here were using a whole bunch of data, data collected surprisingly on elephant seals, that give us much more insight into what was happening deep under the surface. The documented, is easy to document and study surface warming, because we can use satellites, we can use a number of other things, but what's happening inside the water is way harder, and this blob wasn't as simple as researchers once thought. Now, the reason why they were using these elephant seals is because it was a data set that the researchers had. University of California Santa Cruz has been long studying elephant seals. Daniel Costa, a professor of ecology at UCSC have been using decade long studies of advanced tagging technology to track the month long migrations of these elephant seals up and down the North Pacific Ocean. And they're really handy to track as well because they go on a pretty good journey of around 6,000 miles across the North Pacific. Well, it's a pretty good way to collect a whole bunch of data. Female elephant seals go to the open ocean and that's pretty good because, you know, they're going out in there pretty regularly and traversing through a pretty unusual journey. And a ship might only ever go through that area once to collect data, whereas the seals are traversing all the time and they're traveling all over the place. And it gives you a really rich data set. And that's the kind of data resolution that was not just on the surface where you know a boat or satellite could take it, but deeper down. Because elephant seal data they collected was actually going even a thousand meters or so deep into the ocean. Now, what they saw from the data from the seals is that this big blob of heat in the ocean was even measuring warmer, warm temperatures extending down a thousand meters below the surface. And this subsurface warming actually persisted way longer. 2015 was the purported end date of this North Pacific blob, but actually subsurface warming was continuing well into 2017, long after the surface temperatures had stabilized. Now, scientists just didn't know because they weren't able to accurately measure and track it. But using the SEAL data, they can. Now, the blob, as we understand it, at least today, was well studied with respect to surface warming because the surface warming is driven by atmospheric checks, which can be easily tracked and changed using all of the models and data that we have on the atmosphere. So why there was extensive subsurface warming then raised to researchers like Edwards a lot of questions. Because, well, if the driving mechanism was thought to be the atmosphere, how is it still having so much heat underneath? And actually, where was this heat coming from? If the surface had cooled and normalized again, where was what was driving the lower parts to still be heated? The temperature anomalies are really deep. So it's not likely to be mixing from the surface. Perhaps it's Warm waters that were transmitted north from somewhere further south possible a change in current to be pushing the water could have resulted in that But changes in the surface could have meant that the currents could have changed the way that they were working drawing water from different places Balancing the current is not just balancing the current in one plane But there's whole stacks of current just like there is in the atmosphere all going different ways and maybe changing the surface changed what was happening deeper down now the problem is These researchers still don't have a good feel for what exactly happened in this Pacific blob case. And the thing is, researchers are expecting marine heatwaves to occur more frequently as our climate changes. And the magnitudes of these also to increase as global temperatures rise, but also the sea levels rise as well. So understanding the way in which these heatwaves work in the ocean is incredibly important. And this really well-documented case, or at least we thought well-documented case from the 2010s just goes to show that we we didn't actually know enough to really understand it. We can't just consider the surface level. We have to dive deeper. Now, studying elephant seal data is one way to do it, but that wasn't a purpose-built study. That was just a bonus of using the data that was already available from the seals and looking at it for trends. But if further trend and work is to be done studying these kind of events, it really shows the benefit of having deeper understanding, literally, in this case, deeper measurements and data that can be used to track the changes over time, not just at the surface, because there may be strange occurrence afoot below the surface that we need to keep tabs on. Now, lead author in this paper, published in the journal Geophysical Research Oceans, was Rachel Hussler with Theresa Keats, Daniel Costa, and Krista this has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From huge percentages of ocean life being wiped out and slowly recovering, to the way heat can persist in our oceans for far more than we expected. Our ocean and climates have changed in the past and continue to change. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Anatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.